I do want to say it's, it's good for the Kurtzes to be back. Uh, I haven't seen them for so long. I think that retirement has made them into, um, they're getting a little spiritually soft. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not quite here as often as they used to, and um, so um, you'll have to tell us about the delights of your retirement here one of these days. Okay, um, Isaiah 37. Uh, let's uh, open our Bibles uh, to the right place here. We'll do a, a kind of a, a, a short overview summary, and then we'll start looking at some of the things that Luther says about the pieces that are, that are in this chapter. It's a very significant chapter in Isaiah. Um, should we um, maybe begin with a word of prayer? Dear Lord, God, Heavenly Father, ruler of all things, whose majesty and glory is preeminent in the world, but who comes to us in humility and lowliness and calls upon us to also trust where the reason does not allow us to trust, where our own human strength does not allow us to be strong, where it is that the way that we want to solve our problems, you have a different thing in mind, a different path. We pray, O oh Lord, that we might be like Hezekiah, and we would look to you in all times of trouble, to call upon you in that day of trouble, because we know that you will always deliver us. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, um, the, the book of, uh, of the 37th chapter of Isaiah starts off, of course, with, um, with this Sennacherib who surrounds Jerusalem, comes up against Jerusalem, and who begins to insult uh, not only the, uh, the, uh, the uh, people of Jerusalem, but he insults uh, God himself. And, of course, one of the things that you don't do, you can mess with me, and you can see that... Um, that I have all kinds of reasons for weakness and all kinds of failings, and you can say anything you want to about me, but um, what is it that those people in New Hampshire say? Um, don't tread on me, and that's what really God says. That's the, the last person that you want to tread on. Well, when word comes uh, that... Uh, there isn't going to be any help really for, uh, for Hezekiah, even though supposedly the rumor is that the Egyptians are going to come to his aid. Sennacherib, who has an army that could make short shrift of the uh, Egyptians, uh, has got him in bad shape here. So Hezekiah, recognizing this, falls down in prayer in verse 14, 37, 14. Um, and he prays uh, in a prostrate position before God, he prays to the Lord and says, O Lord, God Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. Notice how it is that he basically says, um, He's insulting you, God. And so please, God, it's kind of like, you, you go get him now. 
because of this. And so if we go on, we see that in, um, here in chapter 37, verse 21 and following, I, Isaiah sends word from God to um, Hezekiah, and he goes into this beautiful, long speech, this, this, this sermon, if you will, where he now basically says that he's going to crush Sennacherib because Hezekiah has gone before God to ask God to deliver them. And then in verse 30, this will be a sign for you. This year you will eat what grows by itself and the second year what springs from that. In other words, uh, when an army came, of course, what they would do is they would go and take all your crops. They would take everything that you would have, and even if you survived the siege, the following year, if you didn't have a chance to get out and sow your crops and take care of them, the following year you also didn't have any food. And God says, you're going to have it. You're going to have it both this year and in the year that is yet to come. And then he goes on and he talks about um, this remnant that's going to come out of Mount Zion and survive. And then uh, after this uh, Beautiful promise uh, ending in 35. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. In other words, this has to do with God's honor. And that's the way that we also need to think. Uh, when God acts, he acts especially for the sake of his own word and name. Um, Moses kind of pulls this on God, if you will. He, when he comes down from the mountain and God is wrathful and he wants to destroy all the Israelites and he's going to make a whole new nation right out of Moses himself. <laughs> um, Daddy, <laughs> he wants you. Um, and, and, and Moses, smart enough to plead, recognizes that this will, of course, destroy God's name. How would you like to be a, a, a godly person, a believer in this God of Israel who takes out three million people into the wilderness and then kills them all out there? Well, even though they justly deserved it, they are spared really for the sake of God's name. And so he calls upon God uh, to defend, and God says, you, you bet, for the sake of not only my name and my glory, but basically also because I made a covenant. I made a promise to these great patriarchs like David that I would do this, I would preserve a pe your people. Then comes the part that, that really gets everybody uh, interested in going in verse 36 and following. The angel of the Lord went out that night and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. Uh, we pray with our, for our children, uh, don't we, that, we, that they would be guarded and protected by angels? And you say, do angels have power? One angel goes out and kills 185,000 of Sennacherib's men. Wow. Um, now, Luther kind of chooses not to make that big of a deal about this because he thinks that the promises of God are far more important in the rest of that chapter. So let's, um, let's back up now and let's go to see what, what it is that Martin Luther has to say here. 
about this chapter. Now, um, to start with, in 37.1, he is dealing with kind of, this, I guess we might call it the subject of what do you do when you're dealing with really bad people? And in the previous study that we had last week, Martin Luther says, you shut up. You don't even talk to them. Because the minute that you start talking to people who are irrational, radical people, you find out that they don't become better as a result of it. They actually become worse, right? And so um, Luther, as Hezekiah rends his garments, right, uh, a sign of extreme, um, uh, I guess, what do you call it, fear, remorse, um, uh, you would, you would, in a sense, rip your garments when you, when you saw no hope in sight. Luther says, we have heard this passage that one must not argue with a blasphemous spirit because he only becomes more infuriated by argument. So today we see, and here's Luther's application, that in the case of our papists, that the more we write and argue against them, the more they rave. Though one mouth of Satan be stopped, ten others are opened. Now, you're, um, I read a, a book a while back about um, uh, dealing with conflict. When you are dealing with people who are not interested in resolving anything, they're only interested in trying to be able to destroy you or destroy your country or whatever it might be. The book said what they do is they put you into a position where you have two choices. One is to run. To run away. They call it flight. The other is, that rhymes with flight, to fight. And either way, they've got you exactly where it is that they want you. Because if you start fighting, they use your fighting as an excuse to justify what they're doing. If you run away, if there's flight, they use that as justification for saying that you're running away because you were guilty. And so Luther basically says there's nothing you can do but probably not to say nothing. But even in their case, where they were required, like, for instance, the Augsburg Confession, what year was the Augsburg Confession presented before the emperor? 1530, somebody, ooh, wow, somebody's got it here. 1530, they go before the emperor, they present the Augsburg Confession, um, they, the, the first thing that they do is they say, number one, you can't publish this or let anybody else know what it is that you just said. Number two, we're going to publish the confutation, which is a supposedly the, the, it was a, the, they got their scholars together and they were going to refute what it is that the Lutherans had said about their confession. But of course, how are you supposed to refute something that can't be published? Well, the idea was, kind of like with Luther, what? Just simply recant. Take back everything that you've said. And they told the Lutherans, you can't do this. Well, the Lutherans not only had to, had to produce it, the Latin manuscript that they handed over uh, to, the, um, to the emperor uh, disappeared. Nobody knows where it is. Nobody's ever found it. But then, of course, they came up with this confutation, so the Lutherans had to turn around and respond. And they wrote something called the Apology for the Augsburg Confession, which explained more fully what it is that they had believed and refuted, I guess you might say, the confutation. But th there was nothing that they could do. Uh, the minute that they tried to be able to explain from Scripture, from confessions, 
in explaining this beautiful, beautiful, probably the greatest, most pure theological treatise outside of the scriptures that has ever been written. And it was, we're going to squash you. Shut up. You cannot talk. And then they were raving, raving, raving against Luther and his followers, making up all kinds of false accusations against them, maintaining that Luther was this terrible seven-headed monster who was trying to destroy the church with blasphemies. And they would look to people like Wycliffe in England and Jan Hus who had been in, in the Czech Republic and they tried to be able to paint Luther as though he was this horrible heretic of the faith. Luther said, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to just sit back and just say absolutely nothing. You speak and then you get ten more monstrous things that are said against you. So, um, if you can do it, if you can find a way to be able to do it, say nothing. 37.1. Children have come to the birth. Luther says, for a, despairing, uh, for a despairing man cannot pray, therefore he pleads for the intercession of others. Quote, pray for me. Um, I, I just, I found this to be I guess kind of interesting, important. If you've ever been in a situation of just utter despair, have you ever been there? Sometimes you see people in utter despair when somebody has died. Um, I remember once I had a, a parishioner of mine in in uh, in Utah, and she was a she was a lady who had lost her husband. She had a daughter, only one girl. She was all by herself. But when she lost her husband, she would go into her closet and smell his clothes and fall on her knees and weep. That was her life. What, what do you do then? What, how do you pray? Sometimes what you would say to your pastor, your friend, whatever it might be, and person says, I can't pray. Well, you would say, you know, Paul tells us that sometimes the Holy Spirit has to intercede for us with sighs too deep for words. That in other words, those sighs, those deep, heartfelt sighs, the Holy Spirit out of his kindness in, translates those into prayers before God. But... We sometimes need people to pray for us and with us. And so be mindful of this, that when people go into despair, and don't always feel as though you can't share your despairs with other people. We can't. In fact, sometimes, isn't that really what it is that we as Christians should be doing? That when we feel those times of great despair, that there's somebody that we can reach out to who will pray with us and for us. And their prayers, interceding prayers, are what is so, so helpful, so uh, meaningful to our souls. So think about that. Think about how it is that you can hel also help others. All right. Um, 37, 6, do not be afraid because of the words. Luther says he will take charge himself. And we'll repay him. That's the other part of despair. You know, when you get into that fight, fight or flight situation, that's where it is that we turn it over to God. 
and we say, God, you be the one to repay these individuals because I can't do it. And I'll guarantee you, God has better ways of being able to bring about justice than you or I could probably ever do. And boy, did Sennacherib ever get it. <laughs> it was uh, it's one of those stories you just kind of kind of wish that something like that might happen every once in a while here. But um, 37.7, he shall hear something. Luther says, why don't you read it with me? Therefore, the one task of the godly is to trust in God and his word in all trials and hopeless situations to rely on God who can very easily save us. Let us put away our reason, hope, counsel, and power. Since these cannot save us, let us take refuge with God. Now, uh, Luther, you know, it was kind of interesting that at the very end of his life, you know, um, Small Caldic League was formed by the Lutheran princes. And um, the Small Caldic League was really, I guess you might say, the Lutheran answer to their self-protection because Charles V was marshalling his forces for an invasion of Lutheran land. And the, really the Small Caldic League... It, if you kind of look at the size of the armies and the way in which things were balanced, it, it, would, it would have been a very fair fight. The Small Catholic League was, these were not individuals who were uh, sissies by any means. But Luther said, we can't use force to defend the gospel. We can't. And they didn't listen to him. And so they formed their Small Catholic League and they were crushed by the emperor. He had some generals that were a whole lot smarter than the generals on the side of, of the emperor of the uh, of the duke. Uh, he was called the Duke of Alba. He was a Spanish general that figured out how to be able to. Basically, they almost took the entire army uh, just in one one swat. Um, when it comes to the kingdom of God, uh, we always say, "Well, what would have happened if they had just simply said?" We're not going to fight you. What would the emperor have done? Would he have gathered his forces? Would he have maybe opened up his heart to the possibility that maybe the Lutherans had something to say? You know, uh, Charles V studied with the same uh, monastic group, monastic school, that Luther did in Magdeburg. Um, he, he actually was more pious than people will give him credit for because it was not an easy job ruling the Roman Empire. And he even, as, it, as Luther will make reference here, he actually even gathered his forces and went down and sacked Rome. The Pope was just absolutely incorrigible. He was, um, the Pope was trying to marry off his children. Oh, what about that celibacy thing? I keep forgetting trying to marry off his children to the nobles of Europe because he wanted his children to be able to end up going, moving up into the aristocracy of Europe. Children? Armies? Well, uh, we sometimes look at Luther's comments as though they were really sharp and kind of uh, he was too harsh. Well, yeah, um, the, there were realities here that were um, 
that today we might not fully appreciate. Um, not just the realities of the injustices of a papal system, but the realities were that they had to develop a system that was based on meritorious work righteousness. And it's that meritorious work righteousness without any hope or security that drove consciences and hearts into despair. And this was the greatest tragedy of Rome at that time. And I'm hoping, we're all hoping, aren't we, that today that Rome might see some of that and move away from that. Uh, generally, however, uh, Lutheranism in Europe is so liberal that they're totally willing to give away the farm without any sort of real negotiation whatsoever. They're not... They're pretending as though there's unity there and there's never been any real serious dialogue that will bring the question of justification by grace through faith into the forefront. So the Pope's a nice guy, as my son Hans calls him, the hippie Pope. <laughs> um, okay, so, uh, so much for beating up on the, those papists. Let's go on. Um, 37.12, the people of Eden, Luther says, but Hezekiah, somewhat refreshed by words of comfort, now dares to pray to the Lord. He is strong again, though not completely restored, yet his faith is constantly growing as his very beautiful prayer shows. This is, this is something that I thought was interesting too. We know that faith alone saves. We're saved by grace through faith. That if you have faith as, as big as a mustard seed, right? You say to the mountain, be moved, and it's moved. Jesus is drawing at the fact that, that where there is faith, faith grabs on to everything that the gospel has to offer. But there's also kind of this idea that faith grows. You ever feel that way, that some days, some weeks, some months, that your faith is stronger than other months? You know, times of trial, you know, you say, oh my goodness, my faith is really weak right now. Fact of the matter is, is it's probably that that's the only time that faith really has to come up and show itself, if you will. And it's in the challenge, it's in the time of doubt and despair, in the time when, when something comes on us that makes us, what, is there a gracious God in this world? And then sometimes too, like my wife Solveig was saying, that when her father died, all of a sudden, you're just faced with this, is there really such a thing as a resurrection? Or are we, are we just, are we, are we believing fairy tales? Is there really, 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 really going to be a resurrection of the body? I mean, do we really, really, really believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Do we really, really believe that all sins were atoned for at the cross? And when sometimes the faith that we think we have just so commonly, you know, it's kind of like getting up in the morning and thinking the sun's going to be there, we just believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of all creation. And then all of a sudden, bam! And we think our faith has gotten weak, and maybe it has, but it doesn't get stronger until it's challenged. And yet, every day of our life, we need to grow in our faith. And we do that, right? We do that one step at a time, one day at a time. Jesus said in that text today, we were talking about that, you take up that cross daily and follow. Daily. Every single day. 
so you, you, you have always this, this strange kind of thing in, in Scripture that faith, even as that small, grabs on and gets everything. And yet faith is also something that's constantly being challenged that needs to grow. Now we, I've told you about, about Sven and Oli and, and, I, and how it is that faith works. I'm not going to tell that story again. I've told, so, I've told it so many times that you guys are going to start telling it for me. But somebody said, uh, my cousin from Minnesota, you know, I do take a look right first thing in the morning. My cousin from Minnesota said that apparently there is some whopping, whopping, whopping snowstorm that's coming. And about a week or so, have you heard this? I was telling Sandy Kapeshka, and she said, oh, I better go home. She's got to go back up to Minnesota. Got to get back up there before that snowstorm hits. Well, if you got stranded down here, really, what's the problem? You're with all your grandkids, right? All right, well, we'll see what happens. We all know that, um, that this nice, warm, balmy weather is just setting us up. We just are thinking about something good here. All right. Um, okay. Um, wow, we've got about seven minutes here. Let's see. Um, I want to, there are a couple of things I thought would be kind of important. Um, turn it back over to the other side there. Um, in 3721, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent, and so on and so forth. Luther says, Therefore, let a man learn to trust God, and let us regard our prayers as completely firm. I know that the prayer of a godly man is true and difficult. When such a man is in any trial, he does not play at prayer, but he prays with serious and sincere feelings. This is, um, this is uh, over and against this notion of kind of the, the rosary kind of thing, you know, where you bink, 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 Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, all best that thou among women. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou among women. Using prayer as though merely the uttering of the vocables is what it is that God wants or needs. What does Jesus say about the Pharisees? They think they'll be heard for there. You all just got a D minus. <laughs> for there are many words, right? Not everybody. There were those of you that thought the answer. <laughs> he goes on to say, you should therefore learn this word, amen. Interesting that at the end of our psalm today, it was a double amen, right? Which means that you should know for certain that you have been heard. As James says, this is what it means to say amen. This answer comes from the reason that, one, we have been commanded by God to pray. Two, we have God's promise that he will hear us. And three, we have a formula for prayer from Christ himself and in the Psalter. See, that, you, you, that word amen, we, do, we say it so, we, we sing it. We do all this kind of stuff in our worship and liturgy but we don't oftentimes know why we're saying it. We, we know the story, don't we, that the reason why we sing Amen instead of Our Women 
is because we're singing hymns and not hers. <laughs> no, that's, that's an old one, too. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the fact that you guys have got some spiritual humor there. But amen, amen. Uh, Jesus says it. He uses the double amens in John. It seems to be that it's a, an amen from heaven being said and an amen on earth confirming it that these two... When we pray and we say amen, we are saying that we believe that God is going to answer that prayer. And of course, if the prayer is outside of the parameters, maybe even of the Lord's Prayer, we've got to consider whether or not we might be praying the wrong prayer. So we pray in accordance with God's will, or we don't know what's best, and we know that God will do what's best for us, the way we pray. But Hezekiah, this Hezekiah prayer, you better believe firmly that God answers your prayer. So, let's turn you all into a bunch of Baptists. Are you ready? God answers prayer. Oh, I can, I can go for it. Yeah, yeah. Here, that's it. Don't, don't start doing that in, in the sermon. Wait, wait a minute. Amen, brother. Okay. Uh, 3726. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. God actually, he, the whole thing is laid out there by God. It, we, we think we're in charge. We think that we are determinant of history. Before the world's foundation, God knew you. And you don't think that every single thing that's ever happened in this world has something to do with making sure that you existed physically and spiritually? This is a really tough one. Luther says, what you are doing now, you are doing because I manage it and will it. Thus, Antwerp, Ratisbon, Rome. At this time, uh, Antwerp was the, it was the richest, it was the New York City and San Francisco combined. Um, it, was, it was the richest city in all of Europe. Ratisbon is a very wealthy city that was in southern Germany. Rome, we all know what that is. And all large cities were led unexpectedly by God's gift to the highest glory. But when they added their own plans and interfered with God's office, then they soon came to ruin. When God foretells something, it is the same as what has been done. Although it was invisible, it is visible to faith. God is in charge. Don't worry. But when we, don't, we frustrate and fight against God's office, then all of a sudden something else can happen. And this is what our country better be aware of, too. Uh, we are a country with an awful lot of blood on our hands when it came, comes to the lives of those children in the womb of their mothers. We are a country with an awful lot of very strange deviancy and very, um, I guess you might say, um, there's a perversity there. Uh, we have to be very aware that God does not consider that to be such a light thing. And when this turns against the office of the word, then let the reader beware. I think I've got two minutes, one minute. Okay. Um, 
this is a, the 37-31, you can read on your own, but there's, there's a very interesting point here. Luther also deals with principles interpretation. And if you, the Roman Catholics have always said that there are, there's a fourfold interpretation of the biblical text. Uh, one of those is the so-called um, uh, literal, we would call it the literal meaning, but with the grammatical sense, the historical sense and such. But one of their so-called categories is allegory, that any text can be interpreted allegorically. And this is a, what this does is it opens up the text for some sort of a crazy non, it, it, it avoids what the author intended in the text, and it allows you to be able to put your own interpretation into the text. You just make it about yourself. And Luther here uh, does something very wonderful. He basically says, you better beware of allegories. These are, this is not the way that, m that the text, we should stick with the grammatical interpretation of the text. Now, uh, there's another day for that to talk about that. And let's finish with this 3738. Um, why don't you read with me right after Luther. Luther. Abraham had won the grace of the people of the Jews. The priests are then said to have exhorted the king to sacrifice his own son too and to surpass Abraham with his piety. Then the king wished to surpass Abraham by his piety and he desired to sacrifice two sons, Adramelech and Sharazar. <laughs> when the sons found out about this, they massacred the father himself. So it almost happened to the Pope, who was driven from his realm by Caesar, his beloved son. Okay, lots of stuff behind all that. But this is actually a Jewish tradition. Uh, Luther is quoting. He says, you know, we, whether it's true or not, we don't quite know. But here's Abraham who's going to offer up his son Isaac. What an act of piety. Here's a king who says, I'm going to be even more pious. I'm going to be even more religious. I'm going to offer up both my sons. Well, apparently he didn't get the, get the uh, support of the sons themselves. And when they hear about it, they kill their father and run off to a foreign country, and their brother becomes the new, the new king. Um, but he then says this is the same way with the, with the pope, because it was in this year, 15, what was it, 1527, that so-called Charles V, who was his son, you know, of course, he's doing all this for him, that his son turns around and has to go down to Rome with his armies and he sacks Rome. So there's a bit of uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, with uh, Luther as he speaks about this issue. All right, well, I'm going to uh, turn all things over to a higher power, and um, we'll let Chris uh, take our meeting from this point onward, huh? Teachers must have a natural immunity built up to those microbes of uh, high school students because I've got it. Um, the, uh, um, so we're called the meeting to order, and I will say we're on time. Uh, I, it says you have it open with a prayer. Would you like to open us with a prayer? Okay. We can skip that order business. So uh, I'll introduce Monty Weimer, our chairman of our Board of Elders. All right, first thing, uh, there's some sign-up sheets going along, so if you're a voting member of the church, make sure you uh, uh, get uh, signed in. They're going around the back. Raise your hand if you need, a, need the clipboard. Okay, um, so this, this resolution is uh, pastors announced, and you have copies of this uh, in front of you, is essentially to call uh, Vicar Grady, uh, Seminarian Grady, uh, to serve as an assistant pastor here at... Uh, 
uh, advent. So we'll just go through the, the resolution quickly. If you have a copy, you can look at it as I read through it. So it's a resolution to issue an exclusive call to seminarian James M. Jim Grady of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, to serve as assistant pastor at Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church, Zionsville, Indiana. Whereas seminarian Grady is nearing completion of the specific ministry program, the SMP program of study with Concordia Theological Seminary Fort Wayne and concurrent vicarage at Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church. And whereas seminarian Grady is also nearing completion of the alternate route program of study at Concordia Theological Seminary Fort Wayne. And whereas seminarian Grady will be eligible to receive an assignment at the candidate call service at Concordia Theological Seminary Fort Wayne on April 25th, 2017, and whereas Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church is the sponsoring congregation of Seminary and Grady, having provided emotional, financial, and spiritual support for him and his family during his course of seminary studies and vicarage, and whereas the issuance of an exclusive call is required by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod when a sponsoring congregation desires to call the seminarian that they are sponsoring during this AR course of study. Therefore, be it resolved that Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church extend an exclusive call to James E. Grady through the English District of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod to serve as an assistant pastor at Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church. So this went in front of the Board of Elders and the Church Council and was approved unanimously. Uh, you saw this in your hymn box. The only thing that's changed from that is just a slight re revision in the, in the wording of the resolved. So uh, with that, we can entertain a motion to uh, get this put forward to a vote. So is there a motion? So we have a motion. Do we have a second? We have a second. Uh, any, so um, state so for the record. State your name for the motion. Travis Cummings. And the second was Ned Ryan. Is there, is there any discussion or questions on the motion? All right, having, having none, um, we'll take a voice vote. All in favor, say aye. aye. Any opposed? The motion carries unanimously. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you, and uh, when you see Jim, congratulations. <laughs> and with that, we can close the meeting. It'll be the shortest voters meeting ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, For those of you that were not in first service, I tried to kind of throw this out a little bit. Uh, Jim's, um, Jim's program went from, there was an, we, we call it an SMP, Specific Ministry Program, that was, right now, I mean, let me back up just a little bit further. Um, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is facing a very difficult next 20 years. Uh, the demographic is changing so that the people that we all love right now that are in their 70s are going to be well into their 80s and possibly 90s if they live to that. I guess the average lifespan in our country now is about 85, right? I mean, if you're going to plan for Social Security, you've got to plan to live to you're about 85. Uh, and, and as that's shifting, the younger generations aren't going to church. Younger generations don't have the piety that you guys do. And 
And also there's been a shift in the, in the demographics, that is people have moved away from the rural areas where a good number of our Lutheran Church uh, people are and have been moving to the cities. And of course when they move to the cities, um, yesterday we went up to, um, my, my grandson was going to play some basketball and of course where do we go but to the big box church because they got the big gymnasium. And they've got all the kids lined up, and they've got, you know, all the kids are playing basketball, and then they, they stop, and then they do a devotion. And some guy gets up and talks about how it is that um, we should all love Jesus, which is, yeah, nice, but it's not what we call law gospel. It had nothing whatsoever to do with the atonement, his forgiveness, the redemption, all those things. It was just we, ought to like, we should like Jesus and, and follow him, like today. Well, in any case, these big box churches are growing like crazy, and at the same time, the, the depth of theology is getting less and less, smaller and smaller, and the numbers of the Missouri Synod are smaller and smaller, and we believe that probably within the next 30 years, close to, gosh, they say four out of five Missouri Synod congregations may be closing their doors. Now, that's the bad news. It's kind of like the Hezekiah thing, you know, where you just kind of say, well, you know, we're being surrounded by Sennacherib's army, and are, how are we going to survive? Well, we, we need to go to that next phase, which is called the place of prayer, the place of faith, the place of trust. But at the same time, there needs to be a certain kind of get it down in the gut and worry about it a little bit. And, um, and so... Uh, the Missouri Synod, looking at the fact that probably there are a large number of congregations that can't afford a pastor, thought that maybe if they had a, a different kind of route for guys to go through the ministry, that this would help our, our church. But the only problem is, is that really uh, distance learning, uh, and even if you're in a parish, you're not getting intensive theological study, which you need. And... Um, and uh, many of these people are also older. Jim is going to be, fi he's 59. Uh, when I went into the ministry, I think I started when I was about 25 years of age. Uh, they got a lot of mileage out of me. Uh, a lot of the older guys that are coming through now, you're paying a lot for their education, and you're not getting the number of years. So we're, we're seeing something happening, and, and the, there are guys who probably, they'll take a call, They'll go into a congregation, and 10 years from now, that congregation may not exist because of the changes in all those demographics. Um, part of this is the fault of our own generation because we're not making our children into Lutherans. Be quite honest about that. I think all of us would, would say that the so-called power that our parents had over us is not equal to the power that we have over our own children. And it doesn't mean that we're bad parents. It also means that the world is a very powerful world right now. And they're going 16 different thousand directions. And we don't have, I've got relatives up in Minnesota. All of their kids live within 10 miles. All of them go to the same church together. And they're just, oh, this is so wonderful. You know, all the grandkids are there. And all we don't have that. We just don't have that kind of influence and that power. We're not farmers anymore. So it's different. And Jim was going to go through the SMP program, but we also added to that that he would go to the seminary and spend at least a, a solid year on campus. And it has been good for him, but a sacrifice too to do that. 
Family stays down here. Jim goes up there, and all week long, he stays away from his family, and he comes back. So now he's going to be coming back. His program will probably end sometime in August, and uh, there will probably be an ordination uh, sometime maybe towards the end of August where he will be ordained and then also installed uh, in our congregation. So uh, bear this in mind. Put it in your prayers because we should pray for, is isn't just for our church like our congregation or our Missouri Synod. We have a role to play. Uh, our Missouri Synod has a role to play. And, and it isn't always that we are the biggest numbers. But there's this thing called norming Christianity. That is to say, like, for instance, when you raise your kids, and they're good kids, and you put them out there into the world, they become the salt. And that means to say that when people want to know what's normal, how they should raise their kids, what's the right way to do it, how do parents act, how parents behave, when they see your family, they may not even want to necessarily compare themselves to you, but when you are the salt of the earth, you, you, you show them the, the norm for the way it should be. And that's our job as a church to norm Christianity. We don't have to win everybody and we don't have to be the biggest church, but we should norm. That is to say, our confession, our distinction between law and gospel, the way in which we see the sacraments, this, this should stand as, at a core. And so if we can be that, then we, we are what God wants us to be in the world. And if we're going to be real small, then we've got to be real small. We've got to be faithful. That's what's important. So, on that note of knowing that the world is going to come to an end um, <laughs> without you, um, if, they, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, we do need to bring forth children in this world and to bring them into this world as gifts to the world in which we live. Okay? That's what we should do. And if we can, if we can, if we could, you know what? Can you imagine what our, what our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod would look like if every family was like the Clems family? <laughs> I mean, just, just tons of kids everywhere, you know. That's, that's the way the church actually strangely used to grow, and it wasn't necessarily such a bad way. So, all right, well, let's close with prayer. Oh, Lord God, Heavenly Father, we pray for our church, for our courage, for our confession. May we truly be a church of the Reformation that we might have the courage to believe that your word can accomplish everything. We only pray that we might be faithful, that our prayers would be heartfelt and sincere, that our faith would grow every day, that our sinful nature would be put to death every day, that we might grow in our understanding of your word and be lights to the world in which we live. We pray for our children, that they may carry this banner of our faith into the next generation. And we pray that as we die in you, that we might do it joyfully and with great anticipation because you have promised and your word says we will rise again from the dead and live forever in your presence. To that end, Lord, keep us faithful every day as daily soldiers of your cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.